0: Episode 48, The Counter-Reformation. Hi, my name is Clayton Mills. Welcome to A Short Walk Through Our Long History, a podcast where we look at the events of history and examine how those events shaped our modern world. Last episode, we looked at the Reformation spreading out of Germany and into other parts of Northern Europe, particularly looking closely at how England was affected. One of the side effects of the north part of Europe leaving the Catholic Church was that the Catholic Church itself was also forced to change. It had to, to survive. The Catholic Church needed to take a long, hard look at itself and decide how to go forward. And this process of them taking a hard look at themselves is called the Counter-Reformation. At least that's what the Protestants call it. The Catholic Church itself usually calls it the Catholic Reformation. Myself, I'm going to call it the Counter-Reformation because that feels accurate to me. Because it really does seem that the Catholic Church was reacting to the challenges of the Reformation. They were countering it. Before I go into the story of the Counter-Reformation and why it matters to us today, I want to say clearly that in describing some of the events that led to the Reformation, I'm not trying to be critical of the Catholic Church. I am being critical, though, of some of the leaders of the Catholic Church in the 1500s because many of them had become extremely corrupt. I want to make the counterpoint, though, that there were many good people in the Catholic Church who were not corrupt, and we'll see some of them today. Remember. Martin Luther himself was a good Catholic for most of his life until he was sort of forced out because they were going to kill him for heresy. There were many other good Catholics who tried to bring about reform, but when they actually tried this, the power structure of the time was threatened, and so many of those reformers just had to leave. In this episode, we'll look at the internal reforms within the Catholic Church that did take hold, mostly after the Reformation began. That being said, a part of the Counter-Reformation was an increased battle against what the Catholics called heresy, and so there were some abuses. We'll get to those in a moment. From the Catholic point of view, all of the Protestant denominations, the Lutherans, the Calvinists, the Moravians, the Anglicans, they were all heretics. They had all deviated from the true way. They had left the one true faith at least in the eyes of the leadership of the Catholic Church of the day. On the other hand, though, the Catholic Church did see that they needed some renewed spirituality, and the Counter-Reformation was a time where spirituality was renewed within the Catholic Church. One example of that was a guy named Ignatius of Loyola. Ignatius's real name was Inigo, as in, My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Ignatius, like Inigo, was a soldier. Ignatius was a Spanish soldier who was wounded in a battle with France when a cannonball ricocheted off a wall and completely shattered his right leg. He wasn't mostly dead, but he was pretty badly injured. Anyway, he went through several surgeries and he went through a long, long recovery process. While he was recovering, His sister apparently supplied him with a lot of books about the lives of the saints, and he had a kind of spiritual conversion. He came out of recovery, and he dedicated his life to trying to follow God as closely as he could. He sold all of his wealth and all of his goods, basically became a beggar and a pauper for a while. And then in 1526, he moved to Alcala to go to the university there to study theology. While he was there, he and a few friends gathered together, and they agreed to live as monks, and they founded what they called the Society of Jesus. Today we know them as the Jesuits, and this order spread very quickly across the Catholic parts of Europe, encouraging sort of a commoner level spirituality, but one that was still rooted firmly within the Catholic Church. The Jesuits were eventually very influential in the spread of the Catholic Church in the New World as well, sending many missionaries both to the New World and to the Far East. Ignatius and the Jesuits also established a lot of schools to focus on teaching Catholic theology. Today, when one thinks of the Jesuits, you mostly think of education. Another important response by the Catholic Church to the challenge of the Reformation was the calling of an all-church council. This council met in Trento in northern Italy, and it's now known as the Council of Trent. The council met off and on for eight years, from 1545 to 1563, and they discussed doctrine, policy, and church reform. They actively condemned the sale of indulgences, although they upheld the right of the Pope and the Church to grant indulgences. They said they just couldn't sell them. On my website, I'm still selling indulgences for $500 each, so I guess I'll have to update that and and give them away for free. The Council of Trent directly addressed some of Luther's solas, including the idea of sola fides, or only by faith. Luther's idea was that a person is justified before God only by their own faith. But the Council of Trent said, and this is a quote, if anyone says that man is absolved from his sins and justified because he firmly believes that he is absolved and justified, or if he says that no one is truly justified except him who believes himself justified, and that by this faith alone absolution and justification are effected, let that man be anathema. Basically, what they're saying is that if you believe that you're justified only by your own faith, that means you're anathema, which means accursed, or essentially excommunicated. So the Council of Trent very firmly rejected the idea that faith is what justified people before God. Instead, they said that only by continuing to be rightly in the Church, a part of the Catholic Church, that is, Only together as part of this body could one say that one was justified before God. To them, it was a corporate thing, not an individual thing. People are justified not by their own individual faith. They are justified by being part of God's people. God's people as a group are going to be saved, and you had to faithfully continue to be part of that group. It's a big distinction, corporate versus individual salvation. This idea of individual salvation and individual responsibility is, again, it's a big idea in the Reformation, and it ends up driving a lot of the individualism and rebelliousness, for good and bad, of the West. The tendency of non-Catholic denominations to splinter off and go their own way and create new denomination after new denomination basically comes from this idea— each person is responsible for figuring out their own faith. And if you don't like how your group is doing it, well, you can leave and go do it some other way. It creates a lot of freedom, but it also creates a lot of chaos. The Council of Trent also took aim at Luther's principle of sola scriptura, or only scripture, which was the idea that only the Bible was the true guide to faith. The Council of Trent reaffirmed, the Catholic Church's right to consider itself as the sole guide to the Bible and to the truth. In fact, one of the main goals of the Council was the idea of re-establishing the concept of objective truth. Now, the Council makes an interesting point here. It points out that there were many different types of Protestants all claiming to have the truth, but since they were all different, they couldn't all be right, could they? So they must all be far from the truth. They must all just be operating on their own opinions rather than on the truth. But what if there were just one single body that could determine the truth? Oh, that would be us, the Catholic Church. Then it would be indeed clear what the truth was. It was what the historic church said the truth was. It's a good idea in principle, the idea that there's one body that determines the truth, but it's not a real effective thing in reality, because even within the Catholic Church itself, there was a lot of disagreement on what was true and how to interpret certain points of doctrine or practice. The real point was, though, that things were a lot clearer if there was just one central authority, and the chaos of different Protestant groups just proved that they were all wrong and that they were all heretics. The Council of Trent also wrestled with the question of icons, that is, paintings of the saints that people sort of observed and some people actually kind of worshipped. They also wrestled with the question of paintings that just represented the saints in nice artistic ways, because some people wanted to remove all of these paintings. John Calvin and his followers in Geneva had basically banned all art as idolatry, and the Catholics reacted against that. They countered it the Council came out in support of art and the representation of the saints, which led to a sort of mini-Renaissance of Catholic art again, at least in the south of Europe. However, the Council made a statement about religious art that basically said that religious art should not contain any nudity. This led to a bit of a confrontation, because one of the most famous paintings in all of the world, we've talked about this one in a previous episode, Michelangelo's last judgment was on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, right in the middle of the Vatican itself, and it had a lot of nudity. So there was a confrontation, and some people wanted the ceiling completely destroyed, but others argued that it was a masterpiece and it should be preserved. Well, eventually the church hired a painter to paint over the nudity. So now, if you go there now and look at it, the ceiling has all these semi-nude figures with strategically placed cloths and scarves and stuff painted over the naughty bits. This is generally seen now to have been a colossal mistake, because, I mean, it's it's Michelangelo. You don't paint over Michelangelo. Anyway, the Council of Trent painted over Michelangelo. In addition to that, they made some small changes here and there to Catholic practice, but basically the Council of Trent reaffirmed most Catholic doctrine, structure, and practice. One of the big effects of the Council of Trent was that the Catholic Church came out of it very united and reaffirming the things that it historically had believed. The Council also reaffirmed its support for the Latin Bible, which was known as the Vulgate. Now here's a substantial distinction between the Reformation and the Counter-Reformation. In the Reformation countries, one of the biggest influences was that the Bible was translated into the local languages, whether it's German, Dutch, Swedish, or English. Once that happened, many more people wanted to read it. This was, of course, coinciding with the spread of the printing press and the availability of more and more copies of the Bible and more and more cheap copies of the Bible. One of the main drivers for literacy in those days was that people in Protestant countries were being strongly encouraged to read the Bible for themselves, whereas in Catholic countries, reading the Bible was mostly left to the priests and theologians, so the northern countries experienced this sort of renaissance of reading. In the north, this increase in literacy led to a growth in education and scholarship of all kinds, and this eventually spread back to the south of Europe as well although people in the South were much less likely to read the Bible for themselves. But this wasn't true everywhere in Southern Europe. In France, a group of Protestants who were reading the Bible themselves and were strongly influenced by John Calvin started creating Protestant churches in some of the French cities. These French Protestants were called Huguenots, and they became quite influential for a while in France. They were growing in number, despite persecution, and they were beginning to challenge the established power structure of the aristocracy and the monarchy, who were mostly Catholic. There was, at one point, a conspiracy to kidnap the young King Francis II, and that was attributed to a group of Huguenot aristocrats. And after this, because of this attribution, there was basically a civil war in France, a religious civil war. On the night of August 24th, 1572, a group of soldiers and others loyal to the crown and to the Catholic Church went all throughout Paris, massacring any Huguenots that they could find. This also happened in other French cities. It's known now as the Massacre of St. Bartholomew's Day. After this, there were more years of fighting, but the Huguenots could see that they were sort of not welcome in France. and Eventually, the Catholic aristocracy won out. Over the next 100 years, more than 400,000 French Huguenots ended up leaving France, and they mostly immigrated to England, Prussia, and eventually they started immigrating to America. But all of this left a lot of scars in the fabric of France, which will eventually come back to haunt them when the French Revolution rolls around. We're going to have to spend at least a couple of episodes on the French Revolution when we get to that. Just a quick preview, it's bloody. One of the last effects of the Counter-Reformation was the creation of the Gregorian calendar. The Gregorian calendar is the one that we currently use, and it was commissioned by Pope Gregory XIII in 1582. It corrected some of the errors in the Julian calendar, which was pretty accurate, but by the mid-1500s, it had gotten off by a few days, because the Julian calendar basically added about one full day every 100 years. The Gregorian calendar fixed this by basically taking out a few leap years. Leap years, of course, happen every four years, unless the year is divisible by 100, like the year 1700. So if it's one of those years, like 1700, 1800, 1900, that doesn't count as a leap year, unless it's divisible by 400. So years like the year 2000 is also a leap year. That gives us just enough leap days, but not too many, to keep up with the actual revolution of the earth around the sun, which does take 365.2422 days. No word from the Council of Trent on why God set it up to be 365.2422 days, but they did revise the calendar to match it. In the end, the Council of Trent and the Counter-Reformation did away with a lot of the corruption and excesses that the Church had experienced in the early 1500s. The Catholic Church retained its position and influence in most of the south of Europe, most notably in Italy, Spain, and France. The substantial work of the Jesuits and other orders were encouraged, and so these orders ended up making a big impact in the rest of Europe and especially in the New World, which is why most of Central and South America are still, at least nominally, Catholic. Next episode, we're going to leave the Reformation behind. But we still aren't quite done with the Renaissance, because one of the last high points of the Renaissance was the amazing flowering of the arts, especially literature, that's about to take place in England. Episode after next, we're going to get to the literary high point of the Renaissance, in my opinion, when we look at Shakespeare. But our next episode is a high point all of its own. Next episode, we'll look at one of the most prosperous, consequential periods in the history of England, when we look at the reign of Queen Elizabeth the First.